The very idea of bringing rational thought into politics is the very deep antecedent of our modern bureaucratic rule of experts. Again, I don't want to make this too simplistic and I don't want to encourage people to say, well, Plato was bad because, you know, it's all his fault. That would be silly. But still, the idea of, of uh, introducing reason and therefore expertise into politics, which is the problem we have now with our bureaucratic oligarchic rule of experts, Anthony Fauci and others, in a, in a long winded way, goes all the way back to Plato. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo Slayback and Tom Saroof. Joining us on the podcast today is Glenn Elmers, who is the Salvatore Research Fellow in the American Founding at the Claremont Institute. He holds a PhD in political philosophy and American government from Claremont Graduate University and is the author of The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America. And now out with Encounter Books is the recent re- recently released The Narrow Passage, Plato, Foucault, and the Possibility of Political Philosophy. Uh, he's also a prolific and often controversial commentator on public affairs. And he was my teacher at the Publius Fellowship, which we both recently returned from uh, in, out in California. So Glenn, good to see you again. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's good to see you again. I'm very happy to be here. Great. And before we begin with our discussion, um, we'd like to thank you, listener, for listening to Conservative Conversations. Uh, this podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and our mission is Educating for Liberty. So if you'd like to join us in fulfilling this mission, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So you start the new book with the image of the Tower of Babel. How does that image, if you could start us off um, by kind of giving us the, the landscape we're working with here, how does that image reflect contemporary America or even Western civilization as a whole? Sure. Uh, I use that because it's, uh, uh, it came, the, the image of the Tower of Babel comes out of an article written by Jonathan Haidt, who's a pretty well-known mainstream sociologist. And I quote him to show that it's not just me who sees these things. All across the political spectrum, people, I think, are noticing uh, what I call a regime crisis, or you could call you know, a crisis in our politics, a very deep division. And it's so deep, in a way, uh, it's not as, uh, it's, it's quite different from the Civil War uh, of the 19th century. But in certain ways, uh, I and others at Claremont have said this, uh, it's deeper in the sense, you know, Lincoln said, we both, both sides pray to the same God and read from the same Bible. And that's no longer true. Today, the divisions between what you could call red or blue America, between left and right, between the t- deplorables and the woke, are so deep, so metaphysical, so theological, that we no longer even speak the same language, the same moral or political language. And so in that sense, the Tower of Babel is a very good image, right? You, We all remember the story from the Bible when, uh, out of hubris, people tried to build a tower up to heaven and God broke the tower and, and divided people into many different languages and they couldn't communicate with each other anymore. And that's in a way what we have. We Red and blue can hardly even speak to each other anymore because we just see reality in different ways. Another analogy that you draw from in the book and uh, is uh, Weimar Germany. So this is, even this division is, not, in America maybe it's new, uh, or maybe it's not new, but it's... Um, this is not the first time this has happened in, in world history or in human history. Um, and so drawing from Strauss uh, and sort of what he was analyzing with the Weimar Republic, 
this sort of decadent republic uh, has causes or produces disillusionment amongst the youth who then turn to fascism. Um, and right. that gives rise, of course, to, to Hitler and the Nazis. But what are the parallels there that you're seeing that are causing you to you know, ring the alarm bells? Right. So, uh, you know, Leo Strauss, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, was this very eminent professor of political philosophy. And my teacher, Harry Jaffa, was one of his students. And Strauss fled Nazi Germany in the 1930s, first to Britain and then to the United States. And so he saw firsthand the problems of Weimar Germany. You know, people forget that in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, Germany was, in, a, in many ways, the peak of human civilization, the most cultured, the most civilized, the most educated, the most refined people in the world. But as Strauss points out, uh, they had no moral strength, no political strength to oppose Nazism, right? Their intellectual refinement, their education, in a way, uh, made them weak. Uh, they were, as Tom, you used the phrase decadent. That's, that's a good word. They were decadent. They, they didn't know what they believed in. It was, it was refinement without any foundation. It was education without any principles, you might say. And so when the Nazi threat came along, Weimar Germany was totally unable to defend itself. So analyzing this, Strauss in 1941 wrote a very thoughtful essay on what he called German nihilism. And he pointed out how many young people, and some of these young people became Nazis, some of them didn't, but he's more interested in the phenomenon of old-fashioned, we would today use the word based, that was obviously not a word <laughs> in Weimar Germany, but, you know, younger people who rejected this decadence, who rejected this groundless uh, hedonistic refinement, who wanted something more meaningful out of human life, but they didn't have anything to turn to. And Strauss makes the very interesting observation that you might think these people needed liberal education. And Strauss says, no, what they needed was old-fashioned education. They needed teachers who understood their longing for some nobility, some purpose, some meaning in human life, which they could not get from the decadent culture they found. And so the reason I think that's uh, appropriate today is you see an awful lot of young people, the Twitter frogs and others, turning to Nietzsche, turning to radical alternatives, right? Turning to, you know, some of its, uh, frankly, I think a little bit adolescent, uh, but turning away from uh, what I think is a higher, nobler uh, understanding, turning away from politics also, by the way. Uh, and so part of what my book, is trying to do in, in a way my Java book is to show that if you're disgusted by clown world, you don't have to turn to Nietzsche. You don't have to turn to some of these more radical alternatives. There are themes in classical political philosophy and even in America at its best that provide a better alternative. So just out of curiosity, because um, I think actually, you know, you, you referred to some of the, the, you know, the gripers and, and, adjacent groups. There is a piece, I think, by Bronze Age Pervert today that I, I haven't read yet, but it's circulating on Twitter. We won't link that in the bio because I don't think our listeners should read anything. <laughs> maybe I think it's maybe by him or someone writing about him. But um, there, it almost seems like there is a and I, I sincerely believe this the sickness that especially the U.S. faces is a deeply metaphysical one. Um, yeah. So perhaps you could if you could unpack that or kind of draw from this absence of, um, because I, I personally believe that nihilism is very tightly connected, closely connected to just this, this total absence of belief in, um, and obviously belief can manifest itself in many different ways. A God, it can be the, the Christian Judeo-Christian God, um, or it can be one that is, uh, the materialist kind that we see, um, on, on the woke and progressive left. Right. So, 
how would you unpack the, um, you know, for our listeners who are interested in the theological fight that we're up against? Um, what, what's your, you know, view there? Right. So um, in a way, all of I spend more time in the new book, the Narrow Passage book, looking at the left, in part because what we're seeing is a crisis of the modern world, a crisis of the Enlightenment, you know, a crisis of modern thought. And the left is obviously much more wrapped up with the crisis of modernity. It represents the extremes of modern philosophy. And also the left, frankly, controls almost every ins major institution in American life. And so understanding that, I think, is more interesting. And the, the metaphysical crisis that you alluded to, I think, is long ago the left rejected the idea, the classical idea of natural right on the one hand, which you get out of Plato and Aristotle, the idea that there is, we live in a, in a moral universe, a physical and moral universe that we do not create, and this provides both guidance and limits to human life, right? We, we, can't, we can't just make the truth, and we can't just make ourselves into anything we want to be. But modern leftism, and this is a long, complicated story that I tried to get into a little bit, rejected that a long time ago, partly out of a sense that they don't want to be bound by any limitations on their will, on their passions, on their desires, and connected with, and this is a, uh, um, an important theme that we haven't mentioned yet, is the power of science, right? Uh, once the scientific revolution happened a few hundred years ago, people thought that technology could do anything. And science has indeed progressed at an amazing rate, and we now have the ability to manipulate nature in all sorts of ways. And it's gotten to the point now where we think that we can make nature into anything we want without any kind of moral uh, or political or even metaphysical restraints to the point of turning boys into girls or girls into boys, right? That's a very different way of looking at the world. And that's, you know, metaphysically different from the way those of us on the right view the world. We still think that there is such a thing as justice or morality grounded in nature that we can't just simply make conform to our will. We think there is a God who puts limits on human will. We don't think that we can just turn the world into anything we want and <laughs> change boys into girls. And so this metaphysical divide goes down to the deepest level of how you understand reality, uh, as well as God and morality in our place in the world. I want to turn and ask about... Um your treatment of Plato in the book, because it's the narrow passage, Plato, Foucault, and the possibility of political philosophy. We'll put Plato and Foucault in conversation, but starting since you yeah. were talking in uh, a little earlier about how classical political philosophy could be an antidote or was addresses the longing of um, what the young disillusioned people in Weimar, Germany were facing and that that's an antidote or that spe they actually have something to say. Um, I, there's a very fascinating tension in in the within ancient politics, and we talked a lot about this at Publius, and you talk about it in the book. Mm -hmm. Is this philosopher in the city problem? Um, yeah. But how? What I found so interesting, and that this I didn't even think about this as a fundamental problem, is that our desire for to have the wisest rule, which is sort of a natural desire, mm -hmm. um, and that reflects part of the idea of the American regime, but also a lot of classical regimes is that, well, obviously the wisest should rule. Um, but that can have, that can lead to a philosophical tyranny. So could you describe that problem for our listeners? Cause I thought it was a really great insight. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, uh, just as, uh, to sort of segue into that, Strauss thought that the crisis of the West, the moral political crisis that not just the United States, but I think all of Western civilization is undergoing 
has to be traced all the way back to the Greeks. And it all starts with Plato and Socrates. And um, there's both a great promise, a great, uh, an opening of great possibility, but also a great danger. So the, the tension you're referring to between the philosopher and the city is every city, which is just a, another way of saying political community, nation, regime, um, is always a mixture of natural right of what's objectively true with, uh, you know, different conventional uh, things. You know, we each have our own, con you know, different ways of uh, uh, punishing crime and speed limits and currency and all that. There's all these conventional things that are not, you know, universally true by nature. But we also uh, are not uh, uh, merely logical creatures. We're not Vulcans, right? Uh, and so people uh, need traditions, they need customs, uh, they need uh, an, an admixture of things beyond just, you can't, you can't have a regime that's just purely based in logic. The philosopher, however, uh, always goes beyond those conventions. He wants to know what's universally true and universally right. And this, this can be destabilizing for any political regime, right? The absolutely unrelenting, skeptical challenging of every deeply held belief is what philosophy does. But that can be dangerous and corrosive, and it's what ended up getting Socrates killed. The problem is you can't simply abandon philosophy. You can't ever abandon the pursuit of truth, partly because human beings are built this way. You know, Aristotle says human beings are both political and we're the beings who want to know. And so there's always, a, the philosophy always poses a tension with political life because it wants to uncover, uh, it wants to challenge every deeply held belief in pursuit of the truth. But we need uh, those conventions, those traditions in order to have stable and healthy politics. And so that's that's always a tension. But um, Plato also uh, opens up the idea of the rational society, right? And it's too simplistic to simply lay all of our modern problems at Plato's feet. That's <laughs> silly and superficial. But in a way, the very idea of bringing rational thought into politics is the very deep antecedent of our modern bureaucratic rule of experts. Again, I don't want to make this too simplistic, and I don't want to encourage people to say, well, Plato was bad because, you know, it's all his fault. That would be silly. But still, the idea of, of uh, introducing reason and therefore expertise into politics, which is the problem we have now with our bureaucratic oligarchic rule of experts, Anthony Fauci and others, in a, in a long-winded way, goes all the way back to Plato. And... Um, that's a little bit too complicated to explain here, but it's what I get into a little bit in the book. Well, then as a follow-up to that, how as a political philosopher are we to reconcile um, this fundamental critique of the administrative state with, on the basis of natural right uh, with the possibility that the philosophic life and the philosophic inquiry uh, is open to certain potentially totalitarian impulses? Where's the, where's the thread or the line that we have to walk? Well, one very important thing to keep in mind is for Plato, as well as Aristotle, and really all the, the classical philosophers in the Socratic tradition up until about the 16th century, always separated philosophy from politics, right? And they always had a very modest view of what philosophy could do, right? Philosophy was a way of life. It was skeptical. It was inquiring. And it could, in a very modest way, offer suggestions, right? It could show some of the worst superstitions, some of the most barbaric traditions. But it was very cautious and very humble about how much rationality you could introduce into society. Again, going back to modern science and modern technology, when we developed a whole 
a sort of mechanistic way of thinking. And when we developed a lot of new technological innovations, uh, uh, the West started to drop this modesty. It started to believe that we can have complete wisdom, right? The ancient philosophers always thought we can never know everything. We can never have complete wisdom. And so we always have to be modest uh, in our pursuit of philosophical truth. With the introduction of modern philosophy and the power of technology, human beings started to think we can construct the perfectly rational society. We can build a politics on the scientific method. We can make politics scientific. And therefore, there would be no limits. We can achieve the perfectly just rational society, which justifies the rule of experts. And we don't even need the consent of the people. And that's what we're living with today. So I want to circle back a little bit just out of my own curiosity, because I've been uh, reading a little bit of Foucault on specifically on the topic of surveillance lately. And um, you focus a lot on Foucault. Um, obviously, our listeners might have a primer if you, you know, if you're a student who's gone through perhaps a philosophy class, um, especially a secular university, you probably know a little bit about Foucault. But I, I'm ex especially interested in hearing from um, your perspective why we should study Foucault, why uh, conservative students should study Foucault, and um, you know the selections you quote in the book sound like. They perhaps sound like a bunch of gibberish. Um, he's a well-known left, you know, thinker on the left, um, and you know, maybe is this a know your enemy type situation, or are there uh, maybe valuable, um, you know, strain kind of threads of thought in there that perhaps the right should consider in our own um, worldview? Yeah. So both. Partly, it is know your enemy. Um, so in a way, what the way I describe Foucault is he he and other the other postmodernists or structuralists or, or you know, French uh, deconstructionist thinkers from that era, the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s, uh, they in a way are showing what does social science look like in a Nietzschean world? My view is that Nietzsche showed in a way, he didn't impose this, he really showed it in a way that uh, modern philosophy had come to a dead end. We no longer believe in anything, right? We no longer believe in nature. Nietzsche famously said, God is dead by which he simply meant most modern educated people no longer believe in God. And he exposed what happens when we give up the idea of an objective ground of justice, when we give up the idea that nature is a guide to human life, when we give up the idea that human will is bounded by the moral universe in which we live. When, when you reject all of that and you embrace atheism and nihilism, Nietzsche showed that it's terrifying in a way, this groundlessness. But most modern intellectual people don't see any alternative. Uh, and what the deconstructionists and the other French thinkers, Foucault and Derrida and others, are trying to show, well, we still have a functioning society, we still have politics, but what does it look like when you give up all the ancient categories? And so they're trying to construct a formal social science in a Nietzschean world, in a postmodern world, in a nihilist, atheistic world. And one reason it, it sounds so much like gibberish is they're reinventing all the categories that uh, because they no longer can accept the categories that everyone from Aristotle to James Madison had used traditionally, they're trying to reconstruct social science in a post-Nietzschean world. And so it has this very artificial flavor. So there are things to learn, especially it shows you a lot about the way our ruling class thinks, right? To the degree that the ruling class is atheist and nihilist, to the degree that they do believe there's no objective ground of morality, they're living in a way... Uh, they're imposing Nietzsche's will to power. And Foucault shows, in a way, the way those structures, the way those mechanisms play themselves out. One of his famous themes is 
the power narrative, right? In a Nietzschean postmodern world, uh, um, truth is simply a function of political power, right? Who's ever in charge? I decide what the truth is. You know I mean, Anthony Fauci came very close to saying this. I represent science, right? Um, if you ask, uh, you know, the leading intellectuals on the left, they don't think there's any objective ground for truth. Truth is whatever the, the, those in power decide it is. And so Foucault and others are very useful for understanding that way of thinking and also showing some of the consequences in terms of our institutions and our structures, which are oppressive and dehumanizing in a way. You know, I'm, I'm a little older than you guys. In my generation, you know, I remember when those, all that stuff was coming out in the 70s and 80s, and people on the right didn't take it seriously. But I think now there's a lot more reason to take it seriously because we're, those leftist ideas are now in power. <laughs> That's how our society is governed. And so Foucault helps us understand that. I've got a friend, he's applying to medical school, and all of these questions that he's being asked for supplemental essays are about <laughs> certain various left narratives. You know, how will you appeal to diversity or how what is how is your study or an appreciation of history led you to appreciate diverse civilization? As I don't think they say the word civilization because that would imply uh, that you could be <laughs> uncivilized when we... So, right. Um, I, but it is the sort of... It's a... Now that they are in power and hold power in the medical profession, which I, I think when I was being growing up in getting first getting involved in conservatism, the, the narrative was still, oh, well, you know, they'll never infiltrate the hard sciences. The hard sciences is where rubber meets the road. Reality slaps you back in the face. So it could never become right. woke or it could never become. We didn't have that term when I was 14. Um you, it could never become infiltrated by ideology, but that is not the case, unfortunately. And so with Foucault, with this reduction to dialogue, with this um, reduction of truth just to being a function of power, does he actually have a solution to that problem? Or is that just the new, what do you do? Because that seems, or it is, uh, not true, yep. objective. No, he doesn't have a solution. And yeah, no, he doesn't have a solution. And in fact, he openly declares that he sort of despairs. He does sort of suggest that you can fight back, but the people who fight back are just the dispossessed and the powerless. And they're fighting back because they want power and they don't like being oppressed. But there's no objective right or wrong in any of it. Foucault clearly saw how oppressive and dehumanizing these postmodernist structures were, and he didn't like it. But he acknowledged openly he had no alternative other than saying, well, the oppressed people should fight back, but only because they don't like being oppressed. He couldn't go back to Plato and Aristotle, who tried to establish a moral foundation of objective, an objective basis for justice and objective basis for right and wrong, because he also, he himself was a postmodernist, even though he saw the problems with it. Tom, can I just pick up on one little thing you said, and I know we're treading in some pretty deep waters, <laughs> which are a little murky for some of the listeners. But just to add one little point, one of the, I think, points that we can exploit the left and where the left might be weak is because it's operating on a contradiction. And one reason it's so angry and confusing and it jumps around and it's so it's always trying to find a new enemy and so much of what it does doesn't make sense is it's being pulled in two opposite directions. One is it still actually believes in the rational state. It still believes in science, right? Anthony Fauci. We need to defer to the CDC. We need to defer to the experts. You find this not just in the medical field, but even like the FBI. I, wrote, I reviewed a long new biography of J. Edgar Hoover. And the FBI 
positions itself as we're the experts, right? Criminology and the laboratories and all that. And so there's this whole attitude among the ruling oligarchy. You have to defer to us because we have degrees from Harvard. You know, I went to the Foreign Service Academy, right? But on the other hand, they're also postmodernists. They reject reason. They say that mathematics is an, uh, you know, an imposition of white hegemony. Well, these things contradict each other, right? <laughs> you can't believe in objective science and the rule of experts and then say, well, all truth is a function of discourse. And yet the left can't make up its mind, or in a way it wants both. And the conflict between these things is one thing that makes our, our current politics so crazy and it, what makes wokeism so nuts in a way. On a, just a practical question, you know, kind of hearing your perspective on that, that tension between these seemingly contradictory attitudes, um, how do you see the, what, you know, just off of the current or the most recent news um, about affirmative action in the university, so kind of pivoting towards what you see um, happening at the elite university level with, um, you know, this attitude towards technocracy and expertise as um, being, you know, enabling um, a government to uh, have this massive administrative state that makes these kind of um, th these, you know, kind of steering an entire country based off of, you know, the the, something that someone like Fauci um, has, you know, decided. But where do you see this tension playing out practically? Um, how would this impact, like, you know, a, a student today who perhaps is deciding to go to college uh, over a different route that perhaps would actually be more lucrative? Um, but, you know, especially conservative students who um, may not fall under this this attitude that you just described, that, that con you know, that contradiction that you just described, um, but are still, you know, they're still hungry for a quality education. I know there's there's institutions out there that could serve that purpose, but um, is it even, is that elite, do you see that elite kind of crumbling um, under its own weight or are, are conservatives realistically ever, um, should we ever actually, uh, you know, concede that, you know, these, these are the left's like, these are their academies and we can't build our own institutions. So kind of a word salad, but I'm trying to summarize a conversation that's always being had on the right. And you just described perfectly, I think, what at least the left is thinking about its own, um, you know, the, the structure that it's setting up through the academy. Yeah, that's a, a complicated issue and it's hard to know where it's going to go. Uh, again, this tension in a way, you know, it's very hard for the left to sustain this tension. On the one hand, they love, you know, the ruling class all belong to this elite club that, you know, a tremendous number of them went to Ivy League institutions. They all know each other. They all network with each other. And so they're very invested in the credentialing that the elite universities provide, right? It's very important to them that they went to Harvard or Stanford Law School or whatever. And yet they're destroying their own, the basis of their own credentialing, right? You can't undermine the intellectual seriousness of these institutions forever and still expect people to respect the credentials, right? And so affirmative action in a way pinpoints this, right? On the one hand, they're driven by this ideological commitment to racial justice and group rights and equity and all this stuff. On the other hand, I think it's becoming more and more clear that the universities are rapidly losing their own credibility, the respect they, and once, you know, once the deplorables no longer give a, I mean, I think we're already there that they no longer give a flying falafel about Harvard or Yale degree, but it's still important to the ruling class. And so there's, again, that's another way that this tension is coming about. You know, if you want to 
uh, uh, just totally destroy the credibility of the Ivy Leagues. They're doing that. <laughs> On the other hand, they they want to maintain it. So I don't know how that's going to play out. In terms of where conservatives should go, amid you know, and the question of the uh, the elite universities. You know, those credentials still matter a little bit to some degree. Um, it's it's really problematic uh, in the medical schools because we're getting to the point now. I, I sort of wonder what some uh, sanctimonious leftist on the Upper West Side of Manhattan is going to be thinking in a few years about going to a doctor who's a minority from an elite university. You know, you have to think at some point they themselves are going to have to wonder how do I know whether my doctor is competent or not, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a very reasonable question, and it's becoming more and more palpable. Conservatives, I think, you know, if they want to go to these elite universities, they have to just undertake their own education. There are professors here and there who keep a very low profile who you can seek out, and that's worthwhile. There are places like Hillsdale and other places uh, where you can go. But just in terms of prediction, I don't know how it's going to play out. And I commiserate with young people on the right who are trying to figure out how to navigate that. It's not easy. That's also a good place, I think, to put a shameless plug for ISI, because wherever you go, yeah, ISI absolutely. can be a resource to you on your campus, and you can start a campus society or get plugged in with our lectures and seminars. But uh, that shameless plug aside, and getting to the end of the book, uh, you're outlining a set of questions or uh, potential solutions or directions, not to the permanent political problems. Those will always be with us as long as there are human beings and as long as they're a political society, but to the sort of current uh, Scylla and Charybdis of the left bureaucratic totalitarianism and um, the threat of like a right neo-pagan tribal um, tyranny in its own sense. But you list history, religion, science, morality, and honorable ambition. And I was kind of surprised by this because I, I sort, of, sort of saw by the end of chapter three when you're talking about how Foucault laments there's no solution to... Uh, the problem of the crisis of modernity, and it's all just a matter of uh, power, and the dispossessed want power, and once they get power, he, do he doesn't really say what happens, but you sort of surmise, we're, we're, it makes us, basically brings us back to Hobbes, where, but instead of the state of nature being the endless war of all against all, it's within the state or within politics, it's an all, a war of all against all, and you can sort of see that playing out today, uh, and increasingly, right. as especially as some of the decorum degrades or um, falls away. Um, so I sort of thought you were going to say, oh, well, these people don't believe in reason and it's either oppress us. So like, I, I, that's sort of where I saw, thought the book was headed. Um, only, a, only, you know, woke militants can only be met with an equal and opposing force, but that's not where it ends. It ends with, with wonder. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about, about that. Right. So first of all, I'm not, I like to think I'm not just a clueless academic. I mean, one of the things that my flavor of Straussianism, which is, you know, uh, Harry Jaffa and the Claremont School, is uh, we like to emphasize that we're not sophists. We don't think that politics can be reduced to speech. Uh, you know, uh, Jaffa was a great fan of Lincoln, who understood both persuasion and force. And this is, again, is a lesson that goes all the way back to Plato. Plato and Aristotle, they were, as I said, very realistic and very modest, and they understood that you could reason can play a role in politics, but you can never over uh, you can never overcome the need for coercion and force. And so we do have to fight politically. Let me emphasize politically. I don't want to wind up in jail with the J six prisoners. <laughs> I mean, we have to fight politically. Uh, and you know, Claremont is very active in mobilizing, uh, you know, 
as a nonprofit, you know, intellectually mobilizing uh, uh, political action. Uh, but I'm not. I'm also not hopeless. Uh, one of the things I say is our political action has to be intelligent. It, if 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 the crisis re- simply reduces to tribal warfare without any conception of the human good, well, that's hardly worth doing, right? If we're just going to reduce ourselves to animals engaged in a race war with no higher purpose, that's you know I I don't really have much interest in that, and so I do think that. Uh, by going back to political philosophy, by going back to understand, if we're if we're going to fight for something, we have to fight for an understanding of the human good, of what makes life worthwhile, uh, of an understanding of justice grounded in nature. And so wonder, philosophic wonder, means we live in a world that's amazing in a way, a world we don't create, a world that is beyond our will. And when we approach life in that way, we can fight politically, but we can fight for something that's good, that's objectively good. And that's what I want us to do. And, not, and I want to encourage people on the right not to simply uh, fall into Nietzschean nihilism, tribal warfare. I want us to fight, but I want us to fight for an idea of the good life. Well, as a closing question, uh, Tom has told me that you have a very interesting perspective on this question that we typically ask our guests um, at the end of the show is, how would you define conservatism? I'm also interested in hearing more about how students who are listening to this podcast, um, if they're interested in Claremont, how they can get involved. Um, Tommy and I are both uh, graduates of the Claremont Publius Fellowship, which you know is an amazing program. Obviously, I encourage students to get involved in ISI's programming as well. Um, we do you know seminars and debates all across the country throughout the year. And so we are, you know, a student-focused organization, um, but Claremont's also a wonderful organization that I think is worth getting involved with as well, especially through the, the fellowship program. So um, perhaps you could, you know, answer that question of what you believe conservatism is and maybe prospects for conservatism today um, and forward as, you know, obviously we don't have to discuss the, the granular details of the upcoming election, but obviously there is that the landscape we're looking at right now is really creating a tension among conservatives. and. Um, how students who are interested in what you're uh, what you're saying can get involved with uh, Claremont. Sure, um, I like a lot of my, my other colleagues at Claremont. We're pretty critical of uh, old, you know, the old conservative establishment, Conservatism Inc. We think it hasn't served the American people very well. It certainly hasn't served, uh, you know, the working class, ordinary, rural Americans very well. Uh, so, you know, in a way, we. I've sometimes used the word counter-revolutionary, right? Uh, we had the American Revolution, then we had the progressive takeover, which is what we're still living under. And so now we need a counter-revolution to get the older America back from the progressives who've now t- seized control of pretty much all the institutions of power. And so the very idea of conservatism is a little complicated <laughs> because the, the very understanding of America has gone back and forth. And and I, so I, I would talk about the principles we want to recover to the degree that we want to conserve something, I would say conserving the best of the Western of Western civilization, going all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans, Athens and Jerusalem, to use a famous formulation. Um, but but I'm not a fan of conservatism Inc. in the sense of the old Beltway establishment. As to resources, uh, yeah, I mean you said everything already. Uh, you know, Claremont and I are Claremont and ISI, pardon me, are pretty good friends. Our president, Ryan Williams, and your president, Johnny Burka, put together, I thought it was a very nice program down in Florida a few months ago. Um, Claremont.org is our website. 
you can find their information. We have several fellowship programs for young people, somewhat older people, uh, attorneys. Uh, there's a ton of material there. Uh, there's my new book, my book on Harry. So if you want to know a little bit more about the sort of the intellectual background of the Claremont Institute, uh, my book about Harry Jaffa has some interesting information about that. Um, so that's, but yeah, um, between these two organizations, I think students could find almost everything they need, at least to start a really serious education. Well, that's a great place to end it. And just as an, as an aside, your book on Harry Jaffa, a uh, very important book, I think. And you did a podcast with the James Wilson Institute, another great organization that we're friends with. Um, and we'll link, I'll link to that podcast because if you want the Cliff Notes version or if you prefer listening to podcasts to reading books, which you should read important books, that's what Strauss would say. I, um, one of the takeaways from Claremont was always go back to read the books. But um, we'll, yeah. we'll link that podcast as well on his, on uh, Glenn, your first book on Harry Jaffa. But thank you again for joining us today. And um, the book is The Narrow Passage, which I recommend. Read it slowly, I would say. That'd be my advice. Um, but if people want to follow more of your work, in addition to uh, just this book and, and the Jaffa book, where, where can they find you? Um, uh, a lot on, uh, you know, there's links on the Claremont Institute. I used to do a lot of political journalism for the American Greatness website. I don't really write that much for them anymore. But, but you know, in terms of political commentary, there's a lot there. Uh, um, I'm working on some new projects. And when, when those come out, you'll be able to find them through the Claremont Institute as well. Uh, so that's probably the best place is Claremont.org. Great. Thanks again. Thanks again, Glenn. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.